Hello, everybody, and welcome to a, a new episode of Queers Do Cinema. We have been on a summer hiatus, so let's go around and introduce ourselves again. My name is Jeffrey Winter with the Film Collaborative, and we are a nonprofit working in film here in Los Angeles, and we do like 50% queer film because I love queer film. And let's go around the room. I'll just throw some names out. James? So I'm James Zito. I am the executive director of the Queer Film Institute, which produces Wicked Queer Boston LGBTQ Film Festival. I had ran the festival for many years, and I am currently teaching film history at MIT and Leslie College of Art and Design. James has the talkative guy who came in right on cue there. <laughs> All right, how about Sam? Hi, I'm Sam Berliner. I use he and they pronouns. Um, I was the festival director for Translations, the Seattle Transgender Film Festival, for seven years. And I'm currently a programmer with Frameline and the lovely team with Allegra. Yeah, no, that's perfect. Allegra. Hello, I'm Allegra Madsen. I am I am the interim executive director of Frameline, and we are the, the largest and longest-running queer film festival in the world. <laughs> Kathleen. Hi, I'm Kathleen Mullen. My pronouns are she and her, and I am the artistic director of Three Dollar Bill Cinema, um, which runs, um, which produces Seattle Queer Film Festival and Translations, uh, Seattle Trans Film Festival, the one that Sam worked for for many years. Um, and we, uh, yeah, so I'm really excited. I feel like we should be called the um, Glasses Brigade, not Queers Do Cinema. <laughs> <laughs> we all have glasses. <laughs> and Jared? Um, I'm Jared Vincenti. Uh, he, him. I'm in Los Angeles these days, but I've been a filmmaker. I've programmed for Wicked Queer, the Boston LGBTQ Film Festival, um, and I'm currently serving on the board of the Queer Film Institute with James. Awesome. By the way, everyone, I updated my pronouns to my signature to he, they, so that could be like a whole other conversation at some point, exactly what the fuck I mean by that, because I'm still not exactly sure. Pronoun twin. <laughs> yeah. And also, yes, of course, we all have glasses. We're a bunch of intellectual nerds. <laughs> um, the next topic. So we're going to talk about problematic queer films. And that is, that's one of those topics that I think is extremely hard for straight people to understand because they simply don't have the sensitivities and nervousness around these issues um, that I think we have. But for me, I'll say that I am one of these people who, I am one of those woke people that is easily offended. I might as well be the poster child for why the right wing hates us so much. I tend to have evolved. But I definitely grew up extremely sensitive to being offended because it just hurt my feelings. It's as simple as that. Made me feel bad about myself. And so I'm just going to say I'm originally from that era that really sparked things like Queer Nation and when we were out there screaming and yelling about what we now call problematic films. And we were really fucking mad, okay? So... I was definitely angered by Silence of the Lambs made me want to break things. Um, off what what's the film with the? Uh... Okay, 
we're gonna go around because I, I so I'm gonna say that the first one that really made me angry and really made me feel terrible about myself for me was Silence of the Lambs. Uh, now we can go around and not everybody has to say films that made them angry. How about also films that are problematic but you love them as well? And I'm gonna say later, years later, a trans film. Um that I loved and that most people of the other programmers didn't like was Adam, which everybody was quite angry that it focused on a trans man. Play, you know, well, it was about a person deking trans people by being a cisgendered straight boy playing a tra uh, trans man. So Adam is, was really interesting for me because I was I saw it in the P&I at Sundance and everybody walked out angry, and I was like, oh, it's just like Shakespeare. It's fun. It's fun. It's okay. Um, so who wants to go next? Actually, I'm going to make you go, Jared. You go next, because I know you probably thought about this quite a bit. Um, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I'll, I'll go with, like, a, a problematic uh, queer film that, um, well, maybe isn't even a queer film. Um, in the same way that Silence of the Lambs isn't, but like Philadelphia, like I saw it before I knew I was gay and I still hated like how cloying and pitying it was like, um, so I think that, you know, I, I'm not without offense, but, um, I think you definitely, um, I, I probably skew the opposite ways. If like something came out of an, art, an artist authentically, um, I really don't care like how many of my sensibilities it, it tramples on, um, one film that I don't think got a ton of problematic discourse when it came out, but maybe has gotten a bit since, um, that I still really love is Tangerine. I think it's uh, a really sensitive and authentic movie, even though, you know, it was not made by uh, a member of the community it depicts. Um, I still think that that film is special and has uh, a magic to it that overrides, you know, anything that I would otherwise put as like rules for who, who should make movies about who. Allegra, how about you? Well, I just want, I'll answer the question, but I want to ask Jared a question. Like, what what else makes Tangerine a, a problematic film? I think it's, um, I think it really is just like who made it and how it got made. And like, you know, I think the, the, the tricky thing for me is like, did it take the money that a trans person of color could have gotten to make a, a film that comes from within the community? Or is it really that like, if Sean Barker didn't do it, the movie wouldn't have gotten made and therefore it's it's a marvel. So I think it really depends on like how how you consider like access to money and the industry, like, and how much of a purist you wanna be about like who who should get to make movies and what would otherwise happen in a hypothetical world where it didn't. Yeah, I totally, totally uh, agree. But then you, you come to lesbian cinema, and you've everybody's heard me talk about it. It's like, well, it, ninety percent of it has been directed by men. So, like, wh what are we gonna do? Um, so I mean, yeah. It, it, then it becomes like every lesbian film directed by a man kind of fits into this into this uh, category. But again, thank God we uh, Bound was directed by women. Uh, but I wanted to say, like, when we asked, uh, w when we were at, when you asked, like, what was the problematic film that <laughs> you loved anyway? Uh, I was going to say Silence of the Lambs. I saw it when I was 
I had like when I when I initially saw it, I had no understanding of gender identity or dysmorphia or even I was not even in a, a space where I could even think about that conversation. All I saw was Jodie Foster. So it's like <laughs> it was of a of a certain of a certain time. <laughs> Um, and you know, I guess it's interesting, uh, what you were saying, Jeffrey, because I also grew up as a, a mixed race queer kid in the South. And instead of making me into, um, uh, the like, it, no, I'm offended. It like made me, I think it made me actually soft and like, I'm willing to overlook certain things sometimes in a way that, that kind of maybe annoys me now. Uh, like I just saw Thelma and Louise again, which is a great film, but the whole last half, Gina Davis is wearing a big Confederate flag. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I think you're allowed to be mad about that. I, well, I am now, <laughs> but I still like the movie. Whatever. There's no doubt that these things change over time. And it obviously has to do with it's why representation is such a complicated and why it matters so much because I was only angry, so angry in those days because there was so little. There was, you know, there was so little to go on. And so everything was so weighted. And of course, that is a difference in our age. Just being 10 years younger, you were not every film was tied to your, you know, it was the the absolute only representation of you on screen. All right. So Kathleen. Well, my whole thing is, is that so many of the films that I find problematic are the ones where, like, the people die on, die in it. The main protagonist, one or the other, dies because they can't live happily or ever after. Um, and the only one that I actually really love, <laughs> love um, which is an amazing film um, directed by a woman, a lesbian, um, is High Art. So, you know, and, but... She dies in the end, right, of a drug overdose. So, like, she's not allowed, like, she's unable to live. And so it is problematic, but it's also such an incredible film. So I, I think a lot about, about you know, <laughs> there's so many queer films throughout history um, where, you know, someone dies. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's a trope. <laughs> it's like, you know, how else can you end the film? Yeah. I mean, that, so Allegra, you really changed me when you're like, but if we throw out all the problematic films that we have no films, that was really helpful for me because <laughs> that really changed my understanding of it because yeah, if you throw out the queers dying movies, there are none, right? <laughs> and this- <laughs> Or committing suicide, you know, that's the other thing. <laughs> um, if you, uh, if this is exactly what I think straight people don't understand. I did say to somebody a couple of years ago, I was like, well, imagine you have never seen a movie with a happy ending. <laughs> and they, uh, could you imagine that? And they're like, absolutely not. I cannot imagine that. And like, that's what we live with. Bam, after that happy topic, you got any happy endings? Of course, <laughs> I don't like upsetting dark things. Um, okay, so... I, I can come up with two for different reasons. So my first response to the question of problematic queer films, even if they're for straight people, is in and out. Um, I remember seeing that, you know, forever ago. I I still have it on VHS from the thrift store. 
because I was like, ooh, representation, like at the time. Um, and then, of course, watching it many years later, because I still have my VCR, I was like, oh, my. <laughs> what? Like, all I really remembered was Joan Cusack. And I kind of forgot all the gay parts. I just remembered that she's awesome. So um, I specifically remember there's this part where he puts this like audio cassette in and listens to this thing that's trying to teach him how to be a man. And um, he ends up dancing. And it's like, you're not allowed to dance. Now you're gay because you dance. Like it's beyond inappropriate. <laughs> anyway, so that's that. The other one I was going to mention isn't necessarily a queer film, but it's something that I've sort of overlooked the problematic parts of, even though it makes me twinge every time, which is Mrs. Doubtfire. So um, Mrs. Doubtfire, I saw when I was a little kid and loved it, just like everybody else. I shouldn't say that. Maybe some people didn't like it. Everyone I knew liked it. Um, Jeffrey probably hated it. <laughs> Because Jeffrey says he hates things. Anyway, and um, I remember just thinking it was really fun. And then, of course, later going back and watching it through a trans lens and a queer lens, um, I picked up on things that are now incredibly obvious and problematic um, that I didn't see before. And one of the, the line that hurts me the most is um, when Robin Williams is calling up his ex-wife pretending to be different people uh, applying for the job of the housekeeper. And he tries to like embody the most horrible people he probably, he possibly can so that when he calls us Mrs. Doubtfire, he's a shoe in. And the problematic people are like someone who keeps kids in cages, someone who hits kids. And oh, someone who doesn't work with the males because I used to be one. That's as bad as hitting kids and putting kids in cages. It just like hurts every time I hear that. And I watch it kind of often because it's one of my mom's favorite movies. And then, um, but in retrospect, there's one awesome thing about it. And then I promise I'll stop talking, which is his brother. His brother is Harvey Firestein and he's really gay and he lives with his husband and everything's great. You're there's no question there's no talking about uncle so and uncle so's husband like it's just they just are and that is kind of awesome so there's a little bit of a happiness thing to my rant okay i also doubtfire from a feminist perspective is like so problematic like i would watch old like family movies with my kids that i think are gonna be cute i'm like so wait, this this man child gets kicked out of his house. So his solution is to lie and connive and like sneak his way back into this house and then everything's okay. Oh, it's it's really it is a really grossly problematic one that I did love. Yeah. Oh, it's a comedy. It is a comedy, people. <laughs> it is supposed to be funny. So it's yeah, just, yeah. The, the, the moral is just wrong. It just doesn't land. Dave Chappelle, Chappelle is funny too, right? No, I fucking hate that. All right, so how about Jay? You got something? I think, and, and I deal with this 
I would say uh, teaching, you use the word problematic like almost every five minutes uh, with almost every film I show. <clears throat> and I think I can pick cer certain films, uh, and I will admit that I've never actually seen Mrs. Doubtfire. I've never actually seen In and Out. Uh, and I only watched <laughs> Silence of the Lambs maybe like five years ago. So I'm. I'm Where have you been? <laughs> <laughs> did you um, like get put in a cage sorry <laughs> i didn't own a tv for a long time and i didn't I watch just watching stan break okay. yep. um, so my my thought is is that as we begin to kind of unpack and, and i think that's a, the, well our guest mentioned something early into the preamble about what do we mean when we say it's problematic and i think that's a really interesting question because we're all going to bring something different to it I think, which is sort of a, a nice kind of arc of our, you know, the last couple of minutes of our conversation. Um, because <clears throat> when I show certain films, I go, this is a problematic film to my classes. They're always, they're often confused by it because they, they read, they'll read it in a very different way. Like what's problematic to me or what I phrase is problematic. They, they get, or they feel like, well, that's like, that's a different generation's problematic. So. One of the things I do, and this is maybe going to be what I will identify as my problematic kind of film, is much more of a genre in that I do a lecture on teen movies of the 1980s. And before I go into this lecture, I show a supercut, and there are many of these on YouTube, of the use of the word faggot. And I think this is probably the thing that resonates with me the most growing up as a teenager in the 80s, where you are consistently identified as something that is terrible through language. And uh, my favorite scene, one of my favorites, like <laughs> favorite in quotes, is from Teen Wolf, where he goes to admit to his friend that he's the werewolf. And his friend is like, well, are you, you're not going to tell me you're gay, are you? Because I can't handle if you're gay. And he's like, no, I'm not gay. I'm not a fag. I'm a werewolf. And then in some ways, like, oh, phew, thank God. Like, oof. That's like, and so that's kind of where I keep, I go when I think about things that are problematic because I love fucking Teen Wolf. It's a dumbass film. Um, you know, 80s teen films are kind of what I love, but there are so many cringy, terror. like, don't even get me started on John Hughes. I will not screen John Hughes films in my classes. I think I can't even, you know, it's like one after the other moments where you're just like, oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. And, and so... I don't know. I, I, I'm throwing this out there as we move into the conversation because I think it's super interesting. Like, what does it bring to us as consumers of media? Like, what is it? What's the effect? And what do we gravitate to? And you love it and you hate it. And you're like, I don't want to love it. But I do. I will watch <laughs> teen movies of the 80s forever, but it's sometimes not fun. So I'll end it and throw it back out to the group. Awesome. So that, thank you, everybody. And let's get to our special guests. Um, on this topic of problematic films, we're really honored to bring somebody in here um, who has made an enormous personal meditation on a particular problematic film. And it's a film I'm film collaborative is proud to represent. And it's called Chasing, Chasing Amy. And we have the filmmaker, Sab Rogers, here to talk about it. Um, I know everybody on this uh, call um, here has seen the film, but it is on the festival circuit now, so it'll probably be several more months before the whole rest of the world gets to see it. But, Sav, I wanted to just introduce you 
And can you give us a brief description of the film? And, you know, then we can get in further into why it's addressing the issue of problematic queer films. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for that lovely introduction. Um, even even still, I have trouble describing in like a sentence what Chasing Chasing Amy is. I think I'm still too close to it. Effectively, Chasing Chasing Amy is a coming of age documentary about uh my, how i saw chasing amy at age 12 and it saved my life as a closeted queer kid in kansas uh fast forward 10 years later i gave a ted talk about what the movie meant to me uh and it got the attention of the people who actually made chasing amy and you see me making a documentary about the intersection of the lgbtq community chasing amy and how i and you also see how i continue to come of age against the backdrop of kevin's original movie um, and it's, uh, it's a very personal, vulnerable ex exploration of what cinema can do for us. And it's also a lot of other things. Um, and I'm excited for more people to get to see it. And I'm very thankful that, you know, so many of the people on this call have programmed the movie and helped us get the story into the world because I spent the last five years of my life on it. So thanks for indulging me here today. Thank you, Sam. Yeah, it's it's incredibly moving film and really approaches this topic in a way that I think none of us would have ever seen before. So can you give us a, bra a brief description of what Chasing Amy is about? And then I would love for you to just tell us the way you related to that. And then if you later came to understand that a lot of people were actually sort of offended by it, um, if you yeah. don't mind how Absolutely. So the premise of Chasing Amy for the Uninitiated is that it's a 1997 rom-com by Kevin Smith, written and directed by him, uh, right off the heels of Mallrats being a commercial failure after Clark's changes independent film forever. So the legend goes. Uh, Chasing Amy is about a straight man falling in love with a lesbian and their ensuing friendship what and what turns into a romantic relationship and ultimately the fallout of that. Uh, long story short, uh, the main character, who's a straight guy, he manages to start dating uh, this lesbian who he's befriended, and it falls apart because of his insecurities, not because of either of their sexual orientations. Um, to many people, myself included, it felt like a very honest depiction of love and loss and loss in relationships. Um, and for a lot of other people, they could not get past the log line because, admittedly, it's horrifying to a lot of people. Um, a lot of people saw the movie and you know effectively they saw either lesbian erasure or bisexual representation they saw you know uh either lgbtq characters that felt fully embodied in a more mainstream independent film in 1997 or they saw a straight cisgender man getting credit for uh kind of moving in on new, new queer cinema's turf and the the progress that lgbtq filmmakers were making during that period of time it's quite divisive still today. I Anybody who's seen Chasing Amy, I've never seen them be like, meh, I don't really have an opinion on it. Um, I've always likened it to being like a cultural Rorschach test of like where you're at in terms of not just like film, but also like LGBTQ community, your views or how you view relationships. Um, and apologies if you hear pugs barking in the background, they're quite rude. Um, I'll try to get them to stop it while we're talking. I digress. Uh, when I saw it at age 12, I was just like blown away by it because for your context at 12, my media diet really consisted of like 
Full House and Star Wars. <laughs> you know, like that was what I was watching. I wasn't watching a lot of films that were like challenging the essence of who I was or, you know, showing me things about myself that I didn't realize. But at the time, I was having a really hard time in school, you know, trigger warning. I was dealing with a lot of like suicidal ideation, like as a child, because uh, I was being othered for seeming queer. Like I didn't even know I was queer yet. And so I see this movie that kind of reveals to me, you know, how I might feel about my own sexuality, but also this movie where LGBTQ people are funny and likable and no one dies and, you know, has comic books, has all the things that I like as a person in there. And so I feel seen by this movie and I start rewatching it obsessively, obsessively. Um, and it gets me through this really difficult period of my life. And from then I start like thinking about, well, not everybody likes this movie as much as I do. I'm the only one I know as a 12 year old who's even heard of this movie. And as I become an adult, I start to see that there's this conflict with other queer people in my meeting of like, oh, this movie's offensive. This movie's problematic really that's your favorite movie aren't you a queer filmmaker like that's kind of a no-no and then i also meet people who love the movie and they totally get what i get out of it and so it kind of starts this interesting conversation to me about well this movie that saved my life is problematic to a lot of people let's explore that like let's see where these truths lie because i you know and as i explore in the documentary multiple things can be true at once in chasing amy and chasing chasing amy in in our lives I mean, that was fantastic. Um, I want to ask Thank you. one question and then try to open it up for everybody to ask questions. So there are two things about the movie that I think are particularly brilliant. <laughs> so first of all, it's the way that throughout it, you're also weaving in the own, your own love story um, with you know, your... I'm actually sure, not sure if you're married right now. I forgot. Your your significant other, yeah, okay, marry your wife, <laughs> um, and the journey that your wife is going on, and there is a certain part of, of time where your wife is dealing with the fact that now your identity is changing, where your wife was with a lesbian in your wife's mind, and that, or or seems like your wife is change is having to change their i their notion of your identity. And one of the things that makes my um, that really opens me up about the way that these movies have changed is we have very rigid ideas of, of gender and orientation and because our need to be seen was so great. You know, I wasn't I, I was definitely engaging in bi erasure by that. Because I wasn't ready to accept that, like, people even could accept the lesbian, the lesbian's existence, you know? Um, so I just think because it becomes in your story, it also you're under, you're, you're undergoing transition during it, it becomes a whole like allowance to trans to change issue. Um, so, the fact that somebody is not stuck in their identity that they have at one point in their life and can evolve in their identity is something we just fucking didn't know in the 1990s, right? So I wanted to talk, wanted you to talk a little bit about what your wife is going through and what, why this movie 
you know, what I think is brilliant is it, it, it just introduces us to the idea that we're not stuck in our identities. Totally. Uh, yeah. I, so a lot there, first of all, um, yeah, Riley is the real star of Chasing Chasing Amy. Deadline called her incredibly charismatic and she has never let me forget it for a second. Uh, <laughs> um, she's been a hoot at every Q&A um, and it's been nice to get to see how other people can see how I see her, but also the inverse being true of uh, people being able to see how she sees me through this movie. It's one of the unexpected, lovely things of accidentally making a movie about your own coming of age is that you have a time capsule of this you know, period that's difficult, but hey, you've got this person who makes everything easier and you get to preserve that in some way. So um, that was a super pleasant surprise. I mean, what you're alluding to is like, you know, at the beginning of the movie, you know, I'm kind of this gender nonconforming person who's not really commenting on my gender. And that's kind of how I've been since I've been an adult is, you know, I'm, I was AFAB, right? But uh, I never felt any, this is why I always, like, I shook my head when you said lesbian. I was like, ah, oh, well, I, I never identified with that because I never felt like a woman my whole life, um, not for one second. Um, as as long as I could talk, I always thought I looked like this, basically. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so, um, and so I always used the label like pansexual, bisexual, which you know I, I could still call myself. Though you know I'm mostly just interested in Riley, right? Um, but for her, she always knew who I was. You know, she always she never saw me as a woman. She never saw me as a girl. Uh, I did not try to appear that way by any means. Um, and so when I came out, you know, she was the one Googling everything for me because I was too nervous. You know, I was like, ah, well, then I'll just get targeted ads. If it's in my Google search history and then I'll have to see trans stuff on Instagram and I'm not prepared to deal with that. You know, uh, the world, even five years ago, as deeply as antagonistic as our government is towards trans people now, um, it was way worse socially five years ago to the point where I could not I did not feel like I could come out at least within my own circles, right? Um, that is where I was at. And so through the process of getting to make this documentary and having to explore these vulnerable things and through not only, you know, the support and love of Riley and my parents, but also through these like deep conversations I'm having with people like Kevin Smith, right? I feel like I can come out and be myself, which is like a lovely, beautiful thing. We did not set out to prove any kind of authenticity for chasing Amy, but the fact is, is that my wife is still a lesbian and she is married to a man, and we're good with that. And so, it's an unexpected uh, surprise. I think that that's those are the parallels in the story, but it's true, you know. And so, if I learned anything from chasing Amy, it's hey, maybe don't maybe don't question it too much. Like she wouldn't marry you if she didn't want to. You know what I mean? She's got her own autonomy. She doesn't want to do any of that. And, you know, we turn our heads to look at the same women, right? To paraphrase the movie, right? And I'm like, great, we have more in common that way. Um, and so, you know, our life is good, you know? Um, and so her journey has been pretty chill. I mean, she can she had to navigate for a second because when I came out as trans, it's literally just as her family was starting to be good with the fact that she was a lesbian. Um, and then it was kind of like, well, this isn't great timing for either of us, to be totally honest with you, but here we are. And so um, the great thing, though, is that, you know, everything has worked out and we're still together. And one of the things that 
you know, even in cinema, right? When talking about like problematic, you know, quote unquote uh, aspects of cinema, why do we expect that trans people cannot be loved, right? One of the biggest things that I still get is like, oh, I'm so glad it worked out. I was nervous for a second because you just expect by the end of the movie that because somebody transitions, their partner won't stay with them. We're, you know, Alex Schmitter always says, uh, and and I think maybe he's he's quoting uh, Rain Valdez here, but rom-coms are propaganda for who gets to be loved. You see trans people in rom-coms very often. I think um, that Billy Porter directed movie with the name is escaping me would be the first I can remember. Um, somebody chime in with the title. I feel bad. Anything's possible. Anything's possible, right? Anything is possible, including that uh, trans people will not be left because they transition and get to be themselves. And so, you know, it's, it's interesting that something as simple as that is considered radical within even queer cinema. Um, but I'm excited for the tide to continue to change as trans people continue to get funding for their work um, and continue to be able to tell their own stories. That's what I'm really excited for. Yeah, the fact I think I was saying, however I phrased it in badly, um, the fact no, that it's the fact that your wife's journey ends up with a lesbian marrying a man, kind of like ends the conversation. It almost makes the problematic film conversation silly, right? And that yeah. that is why I want I want to go back in time a little bit and talk about chasing Amy for a moment. So. Kathleen and Allegra, I need you on these two because I'm hoping you guys would... Well, we'll see. So, Kathleen, you would have seen the movie in the 90s. Did you like the movie? Were you offended? I'm with Guinevere Turner, okay? Guinevere Turner in the movie is like, a fucking straight dude is making this movie. I'm being, um, you know, erased out of it. My opinion was exactly like Guinevere Turner's at the time. I'm just curious, Kathleen and Allegra, if you can both weigh in on your feelings about the movie. Yeah. So um, in the 90s, I was sort of really kind of like, I'm like, I'm bisexual. You are going to like hear me. I'm going to go give talks at universities and be like, this is what bisexuality is. I'm on the radio as bisexual. Um, I was dating men and women um, at that time in my life, um, and uh, and people really pushed against me. Like they were like, "No!" Like there was like a lot of biphobia, like a lot, and way more than now. And it was it it was kind of incredible. Like I had a group of lesbians who were really like, kind of like who are you what are you doing and like push you know and why are you wearing dresses and you know like are you really lesbian are you really queer are you really bi whatever it was like it was like it was a whole thing and i was just i was just like i'm gonna speak out about this because this is ridiculous like this is how i feel this is where i'm at in my life at this moment um and uh chasing amy came along and I was like happy to see these like attractive people in the film, attractive women. But I have to admit, I got angry at it because I felt like it was giving bisexuals a bad rap, you know, bad rep, you know, like. And so I was like, I got really mad at it. Um, I liked elements of it, like, you know, um, 
and I sort of related to elements of it, like within the group of people, you know, group of women are kind of giving, giving um, her a hard time. And like, I could relate to, you know, or the cold shoulder. So I could relate to some of it. But I also was very, um, I did find it problematic. I really did find it problematic at the time, um, because of what I was dealing with. I mean, so yeah, that's sort of, I would have to say, <laughs> but I love your documentary. I have a whole nother view, but you know, like I'm older, right? I'm older than you. And I, I was coming, I was in, you know, I was, yeah, dealing with a, a different time frame and a different identity of that time. And Allegra, you're, you're younger than us, so I imagine you were. So I'm just curious um, as to how you felt at the time, because you're probably a teenager, I'm just saying, right? I was pretty young when I saw it, and I was still, I was not in a phase of life where I could question media. It's just like, like I couldn't, it didn't occur to me to think about who was telling me these stories. Like it just, I just accepted it. Like, I think it, there's a moment when you are like, Hey, wait a minute, who, who's behind the curtain? Uh, so it didn't, uh, the creation of it, it never, any, it, it never occurred to me that, Oh, this is a straight man's dream. Uh, but I wasn't in a, I was in the South, like, like, I, and I had a lot of things that made me other already. So I wasn't like, out at all is something I knew my queerness was something I knew about myself but I I wasn't prepared to like really navigate the world and like I saw it and I saw it in the theater I think and I saw this what I the it was what was really poignant to me was when Joey Lauren Adams kind of uh it explains that like she has the ability to make a choice about who she loves and like that she had that freedom and so I, I kind it kind of gave me some sort of for me in my story it gave me this false uh oh like maybe maybe you aren't quite as gay as you think you are and like uh and so that was problematic personally like that that was that was something that I would need to like contend with um, because I, I'm not free to make that choice like that, <laughs> but it's, it's fine that somebody else exists and that, and, and they can. Um, but yeah, I, 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 now these two movies for me are like inextricably linked. And I think it's like, so what you did have was so, I think, beautiful, the way that you tied your, like, coming into your full manhood with this moment of revealing this toxic masculinity that created this film uh and i just i'll i will uh never stop tipping my hat because of that i thought that was very very uh elegantly done my gosh thank you all i mean first of all all opinions on jason and amy are valid here i am long past the period of my life where i feel the need to justify or defend anything um i have you know uh, i have my own feelings about it and i you know over the course of the movie i was just you know just thinking i was like it's so subjective it's so subjective like every time we watch a movie it's a deeply personal experience if we choose to engage in it that way not everybody's watching you know a movie of the week on a streamer you know and thinking it's this like deeply personal experience but you know if we open up ourselves that way it can be um, you know, and I think about 
all the films that y'all listed earlier is like, you know, these are, these were problematic to me. And I hadn't seen some of them. Like, I think I'm the only person in the world maybe who hasn't seen Mrs. Doubtfire. I'm so sorry. Except I think James is at the same club as me. Um, it just wasn't my thing as a kid. You know, I was watching, I guess, Kevin Smith movies. I don't know. Um, but also this idea of, there, there's so much to unpack in that conversation. This idea of authorship, this idea of who gets to tell what story, who gets to be funded, right? But also, is it just on us to tell our own stories? How can we do that if people won't give us money for it, right? And so, like, when is it allyship actually to tell a story of a community that you're not a part of? Um, you know, who gets who who has those rights in either sense, right? Um, and also what I surrendered to over the course of, of making it is that, well, I have no control over this, but I do have control over how I, you know, let something affect me more and more. So for context, like my wife and I, we've seen every single episode of Law & Order SVU, right? Olivia Benson is a superhero. Do I acknowledge that it's propaganda? Absolutely. Do I acknowledge that uh, primarily women watch the show because it, uh, depicts uh, a world in which SVU closes cases at a night in the 90th percentile. Uh, yes. Is it nice to imagine a world in which people are brought to justice every episode? Like you're watching Columbo. Absolutely. Um, and it has some of the most horrendous uh, trans anything I have ever seen. And when I, I like, I wince physically when I'm watching, I'm like, just don't talk about trans people. Maybe that would be preferable to any of the things I've seen in any of this. Right. And it's a show that we watch for comfort because, you know, my mom used to watch it when I was a kid. And so we watch it when we're sitting stoned on the couch. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's what it is. But I can't, I I don't think most of the things that we talk about are deserving of my energy to be upset about, if that makes sense. Because like, I think as trans people and as queer people and all of the intersections that go between that. We would just be upset all the time. You know, it's Allegra, what you said, I wrote I wrote it down when Jeffrey uh, quoted you. But uh, if we throw out all the problematic films, we have no films. It's not just like, it's not just that for like queer films. It's that for everything. We can't watch TV. We can't watch, you know, something at the blockbuster. Oh my God, Pitch Perfect 2, weirdly transphobic for no reason. Like my wife and I, we went there for a movie night. We were just like, why are you doing this to us, Kate Cannon and Elizabeth Banks? We love you. Don't do this to us. Uh, the weird, like, uh, Colum the, the girls from Colombia, and it's all like the drug meal jokes. I'm just like, we're just trying to vibe here. What is happening? Um, but we still watched the third one because guess what? We were into the acapella singers. And so it's like, that's kind of where we're at of like, at least where I'm at of like, I view all of these films as a product of their time, right? All films are a product of their time. We all know that racism is not cool. It's not excusable. We all know that homophobia and transphobia are not cool, excusable, ableism, run down the list of all the isms that other people. And I like to look at that as like a benchmark of, okay, what's the progress been made since then, right? You know, we you look at a Chasing Amy and maybe it's not for you, but then it made me want to make a movie. And if you like Chasing Chasing Amy, well, it's a direct product of Kevin making Chasing Amy. Um and so that's kind of where I'm at of like, it's all complicated. It's all nuanced. The idea of a film being problematic is so deeply imprecise, but everybody draws their line where they're at. And I respect that. And my line is pretty firm in the sand in a lot of ways of like, well, if you make a movie now that has a trans, a cis person cast as a trans person, I'm out. That's not, we know better. We know better. 
there are a lot of things that we know better about. And that's what I'm concerned about is now uh, and also assessing, you know, past films and conversations thoughtfully the way that we're doing here today. That's my soapbox. I'll get off it now. <laughs> yeah, like this, Sam, just to jump in real quick, I just think you're you make an important point about always coming back to the historical moment. And I think people sort of forget that, that, you know, I constantly remind my students, yes, it's horrible to look at, but you like you have to contextualize everything. And like, it, you, you know, the historical moment is very important. Sorry, Lager, go ahead. Oh, yeah, that's basically what I was what I was getting at as well. Like, we, I think we need to be able to unpack all of these films or we need to be able to unpack our, our creative output throughout time. And like, if we don't, if we write it off as blanketly problematic, I mean, when I, yeah, things are problematic. I'm still going to watch it. I love SVU. My wife and I are on season three right now. I don't know why it's comforting. I don't know why these horrible grizzly things are I'm like, but yes, <laughs> but like if we, it's, we need to be able to oh. unpack them thoughtfully. And I think that's another interesting thing about this film is that you, you kind of, you kind of show people how to do it. The thing is that well, that's, what I want to remind everybody that, especially the people on this call, is it also comes into how much is it our responsibility to change things or how much it is the reviewer's responsibility to change things. Because it's, I, you said you, we could be upset and angry all the time. And I was like, I am upset and angry all the time. So, <laughs> that, but I just want you to know that, like, so when this started, for example, this question of what's an inappropriate queer film, this is like 1989, Glad had just started. I was on the first little group of the Glad Media Committee, right? And we went after work every day and, like, I fucking hand-wrote letters to the way it's brothers because they had that in living color thing that was a bunch of swishy stereotype stuff and it was the only gay people on tv and that and whenever people would say that's what people would say to me and this is in new york city oh you're gay like them right <laughs> so um like those were the only gay people on tv so i decided my job to change that right and the thing is like everybody in this room the room <laughs> works to change that so you know it's the old it's the old adage about activism in the book like yeah you could you could be all upset all the time or you could use that anger to do productive things and see i told you sab is really sneaky about the pop-up things so sab we should all start doing this sam has his hand up <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad i can be a trendsetter here i was just gonna say like with all of everything I just said, you know, yes and, like, yeah. I don't think that we should roll over and just accept whatever is handed to us. And, you know, it's like, oh, well, at least we thought of you. You know, like, we do have, we, one, I think everybody on this call demands better. Demands better by, you know, programming the things that are akin to what we want to see in the world. We're setting the standard as festival programmers, as filmmakers of this is what matters to us. This is what the community buy-in looks like. Um, and so it's like, we can look at old films and be like, yeah, that could have been better. I would love to see these stereotypes not repeated in the future. And it's also up to us to to create the change that we're looking to see. And so it's like, it can't just be on the people on this call. 
I think it's absolutely the right of every film goer to be like, hey, that was transphobic. What the hell? Like, I, I'm going to write someone a letter. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to speak my mind. I think that's really important. And I just can't let it, for me, affect me in a personal capacity to where I'm just stewing all day and I'm really upset. Like, I'd rather just make the movies that I want to see. And if I was upset by every single thing that was upsetting to me, I might only like the movies I make. You know what I mean? Uh, nothing will ever align perfectly with my worldview and how I think movies should be made unless I'm the one making them. And that's the beauty of, you know, being able to have conversations like this, but also film criticism and film festivals is... We get to curate our own community. We get to curate, you know, uh, what's important to us. And so it's never been more important, in my opinion, especially this precarious moment of the entertainment industry at large for queer film festivals to exist, for film festival programmers to be doing this job and to have queer people of all intersections within these spaces to demand, hey, this is the future that we want for queer cinema. Amazing. Sav should have his own podcast. Um, could you yeah. definitely do it? <laughs> it's all right, yeah, lead and up, great. Yeah, I know. I love this new, new, new um um thing happening. It's not new. <laughs> I know how to do the rage hands. Um, but I was kind of I want to I would love Sam, um, because um I would love you to talk about sort of your perspective on chasing chasing Amy and chasing Amy. I'd be really curious. <laughs> Thanks, Kathleen. Yeah, well, well, I was quiet for a very good reason that Allegra knows. I've never seen Chasing Amy, and I have. A, I, I was like, I, I was like, what? I have not seen it either. Sorry. Ah, okay. And I was like, do you want me to screen this film and let you know my thoughts? I do you want me to watch the original? Like, I don't understand it. She was like, no, actually don't watch the original. I want to know what you think of it without that context. And I was like, okay. And so until this phone call, I still didn't know about that beautiful parallel. Oh my God. I just really like chasing, chasing Amy as its own thing. Um, especially because of the vulnerability and the intimacy of, um, Sav being in the film and that being so impactful um, and I didn't see it coming and I was like whoa and like all of a sudden was like I get it this is great but I didn't get it because I just <laughs> haven't seen the original so that's what I have to say about that Kathleen <laughs> um, no, but, but I, I, will say, I will say um, I love this conversation about problematic films and films being a product of their time and watching things within context. And I'll just say that if you want to see lots of upsetting content from a historic perspective, go watch Disclosure by Sam Fader. And you can just see moment after moment after moment after moment of horrible things that they were of a cultural moment and yet deeply, deeply problematic and hurtful to see within the context of now. So that's just an example, if you haven't seen that already, to try to see things within context. Uh, and Jared? 
Yeah, I um, I always um, I find it funny. I have a friend who's a, a history professor. And one of the journeys he always talks about taking his students on is, you know, he teaches American history and, you know, starts talking about slavery and the Civil War. And most students are like, well, well, if I was there, I would have said something. I would have done something. Um, and he's like, yes, people did. That's why we don't have slavery anymore. And so I think like Jeffrey's point about like the the action coming from it, and I think that's one thing that I liked about um, um, Chasing Chasing Amy is like, it wasn't like a we know better now. It was like, there were people in 1997 saying like, this is problematic. But at the same time, like ultimately, like if you throw out everything that offends us now, we're, you know, we're burning the archive and like who that benefits nowadays is all the giant corporations who want you to stream the newest thing and don't restore their libraries and don't protect things because they want you to be offended by all the old stuff that they still have to pay out like union residuals on and watch this new thing that we made under this newfangled model. And so I think like holding on to the, the archive and the history, even though it's, you know, warts and all. I think is is an important part of the legacy. Yeah, we're well, and then also we're going to need to start oh, wrapping. Just want to say, um, yeah, I do think it's important for anybody who is really wanting some background on this topic to watch both the celluloid closet and disclosure. Those give you the the two basics because I mean, you know, I'm very aware that most people who listen to this are just not aware of the history of death and degradation that queer people experience on film. But I also think it's, and I'm going to go to you just have to wrap up. I also think it's really important to point out that you still have to do this now. It's not about in the film. So like White Lotus was something that was super popular. I started recommending it to people. And then I thought it was turning hugely problematic, right? I was like, oh my God, they just kill the queer people. You know, they kill the queer people. And when I would try to say that, even to gay people, they'd be like, you're so fucking sensitive, right? And then, and you know, and straight people would get angry at me and say, it matters, representation matters. And then when that final episode happened in season two, and then they just really slaughtered all the queers all of a sudden, bang, 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 bang everybody called me up and was like, oh, you might have been right about that. <laughs> you know, I was like, this guy, Mike White, has a long history of problematic representation of queer people. Dave Chappelle, perfect example. If you're only paying attention to one episode, you may be like, that's just funny, right? <laughs> but, you, you know, it's a, it's a long history of paying attention. So I just wanted to say it's not just about what we would have said about slavery then I I get upset because I find myself having to do it all the time now. And yet the people who say they know about problematic time are always gaslighting me in the new moment. Like as if we can't remember that we have to be vigilant still. You know, because it's it's painful to be vigilant. I agree. It's annoying to be upset all the time. <laughs> so Sav, we're hitting that one hour mark. I want to give you a, and then let's walk or talk our way out. So yeah, I would, I was just going to comment on what Jared said about, you know, for this, uh, this idea of burning the archive, which I think a lot of well-intentioned people 
are are interested in of like, well, let's we don't need to think about this. We don't we don't need to visit this. There can't be possibly anything of value to to revisit here. And I'm just like, well, that's not true, right? Because one, every film you can dissect it to the point where it's problematic, right? You can do you can do a cinema sins thing to it where you're just nitpicking everything, right? It, I don't. What I want to see is how we can grow as storytellers. How can we get to that idea of of there just being enough to go around to where when someone makes a mistake, it isn't detrimental to actual LGBTQ people, right? Um, somebody misrepresents us; it doesn't have real consequences for our lives, right? I think we need to go back. We need to learn from that. Also, it's like there are tons of problematic filmmakers that you can learn from as a queer storyteller, right? And push forward as in your creative practice to tell the stories you want to tell. And then there's a positive effect and you keep going and you keep going. And, you know, we just try to do better for the next generation or for ourselves or whatever. But I hate this idea of burning the archive because it's also our history and our history is not perfect. Right. You know, there are early queer films that like do not hold up today by today's language or standards, but for the time, Oh my God, it was revolutionary. Like this was all we had. How many times have we heard that? Right. Uh, I think it's important to to know where we've been, to know where we're going to go or where we can set an intention to go. And so that's why I'm like, all right, yeah, like this film's problematic and they move the camera really well. So how can I move the camera really well in my queer film? That's not going to have any of these issues. Um, but also, you know, there's there's a power in kind of taking back what's, what's problematic in some ways, right? I mean, some people think Rocky Horror is extremely problematic. And I'm like, yeah, probably. And uh, it is still, for a lot of people, their equivalent to what Chasing Amy was for me. It was a safe space for them to go and have fun at the movies, to be themselves, to get in drag, to explore their gender expression. So how can we hold space for these things uh, and demand better in the future and also demand that queer people get to tell their stories and be funded as storytellers, um, as so many of your amazing organizations uh, already do? I just want to say, like, I was a, a recipient of the Frameline Completion Grant, and that got us through a really like important time in post and paid for the color correction on it. So like, thank you, Allegra. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Frameline. Um, and thank you to all of these queer orgs for supporting our, our film. You know, we're going to do a, a screening, I think, in, in Boston uh, in the coming weeks, supported by Wicked Queer. We're going to go to Seattle. Um, the Film Collaborative has been doing everything. And it's like this community banding together, this coalition building. That's what matters, and it can give queer filmmakers uh, a real shot at having their films taken seriously. And all of you have contributed greatly to our film being taken seriously. So I just wanted to say thanks before we we wrap up. Amazing. You sure you and I'm just gonna say that speaking of Rocky Horror Picture, speaking of Rocky Horror Picture Show, we had an amazing outdoor screening of it this summer, and over 700 queers came. Like, I mean, you know, like they all came, they dressed up, we had a costume contest and it was amazing. It was, it was totally joyful. I mean, Rocky Horror Picture Show might be the best example for this entire talk we've been having of something that it's not really for queer people. It's problematic. And yet we all saw ourselves in it and it was lovely. Uh, okay, James, are you, I think you should try talking us out since you got all that history man stuff. to talk about. Hey, I raised my hand. Come on. Um, no, I, I think that, that I think this is like a nice segue to kind of wrap it up too. And then we think about um, 
you know, removing imagery that that is problematic and upsetting, I think just reinforces the invisibility. Like when you look at, even if it's, you know, the swishy gaze of the 1930s or, or you know, the, the evil villain gaze of the 1950s, at some point, it's just, it's still a reminder that queer people existed then. And it might not be the perfect image, but, you know, Peter Lorre as like, I still love that character in the Maltese Falcon because I was like, I don't know, he has a he has a business card that smells like gardenias. Like, fuck that. Like, you know, Ed and it it to 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 sort of eliminate that is once again an act of removal. Like, you know, then then we really didn't exist historically, right? Oh, we can't watch that film. Don't watch that film. It's terrible. It's a, it, it's a bad representation. Just ignore that film. Well, then fucking then what? Then gay people didn't exist. Like. And so that's the only, and I think maybe this is a good segue. It's just like, you have to have that. And, and I will say, I've never seen Chasing Chasing Amy only because, uh, I, mean, I mean, I've seen your film, but I've never seen Chasing Amy only because I never felt Kevin Smith's films were for me. Like, I don't think they were aimed at me. I think they were for an audience that was like my dude bro roommate who went to Emerson. I was like, you loved that? And you loved Kevin Smith? And, and so I just never, I didn't feel like it was my film. Right. Um, but I think that, well, but it exists, I would, and to pretend it doesn't right. is ridiculous. Well, and I was just going to say, everybody draws their line somewhere else. So, like, I'll say it on the stall. I'll be brave and say this in public. I've never seen Boys Don't Cry, and guess what? I don't need to. I don't need to see that movie. Uh, I know so many trans men who were traumatized by that movie, and it was the movie that let them know that they existed, and they have a complicated relationship with it. And I'll right. read scholarship about it, but, like, I know everything that happens in that movie, and I'm, you know, I'm glad that that movie was able to help people. And also, I don't need to see that for myself. Um, we have a brutal existence as is as queer and trans people, um, and I, it's not for me, and that's totally fine. And it can be for other people, and it can be a movie that tells other people that you should treat trans people compassionately, maybe, um, or maybe it reinforces some negative things, right? But everybody draws their own line somewhere, and I'm. But here I am not advocating for it to be removed from, you know, archives or anything like that. Like it has a, its place in history. It just doesn't need to have its place in my personal history. And the film I was thinking of is Basic Instinct. Same thing back there in those days. And that's a good way to wrap it up. Uh, thank you, everybody, for another fascinating episode. And in two weeks, we're doing Queer Horror. In time for Halloween. Another lovely topic, Kathleen. Well, uh, I just want to say that we're screening Chasing, Chasing Amy at um, at the Seattle Queer Film Festival on October 22nd. And we're really, really excited about it. So, awesome. thank you. Thank you. And I'll be screening, and it's screening in Boston in November, I think, right before for our Queer Docs Fest as, as part of Emerson's Bright Lights series. Great. Thank you, everybody, and have a wonderful evening.